0: Hi, and welcome to Inclusion at Work, where we show the value and abilities of people with disabilities. I'm Larry Rothstein. Today's guest is Keith Jones, President and CEO of Soul-Touching Experiences, an Entrepreneur, an Independent Living in the Community activist, an Emmy Award-winning lyricist. He has been recognized for his activism by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and by the President's Commission for the Employment of People with Disabilities. Welcome, Keith.
1: Hey, Larry. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, great to see you again and to reconnect. Having interviewed you once in the past, I wanted to pick it up from your childhood, being an African-American and having cerebral palsy and having a strong mom who uh, wanted you to go out in the world and achieve things. And so you can take us back to those moments that you recall as a, a kid.
1: Absolutely. Uh, And again, thank you for having me. It's really good to see you again. It's been a little too long. Maybe after all of this, we will uh, grab a beer post-pandemic, post (laughs) whatever we're in now. But yeah, going back to my childhood, I think people have this, you know, I was just talking to her the other day and I was like, people love you. And she was like, "Hmm," because she doesn't see herself in this, you know, I raised an advocate and I was doing these things. But I tell people that my mother was raising a child with cerebral palsy. She was raising a black man in America at the end of the sixties and the seventies and the eighties. And that's totally different. I happen to have a disability and we were thrust into that world, but the expectations were never different for me or my cousins or my, my aunts, my uncles or anybody in our family um, because of how Uh, my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my family came to St. Louis from the Mississippi Delta, coming from indentured servitude, slavery, uh, sharecropping, to being, you know, mailmen and nurses and army veterans and things like that. So the expectation was to continue to be better, just be good, be a decent human, be smart, you know, but understand the context of the society that we're living in. So... It was not really like, oh, my God, you need to be a disabled advocate to get out. She was like, no, you need to get out of the house so I can get a nap. So, <laughs> it was, you know, it was like, you need to go learn some stuff. So um, I was very fortunate in that her drive, for me at least, was not so much, oh, we're so sorry, we're so sorry, but this is what you're going to need in your life as a Black man in America that has these challenges, you know. You have to use your skill set, and so that's kind of how um, the foundation was shaped. You know, it's a little more nuanced than that, but that's really the, the the large takeaways.
0: And how did your other classmates in school deal with you, and how did you deal with them? Because I remember you had a confrontation with one of your teachers, if, a, if my memory serves me.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the. Um, was a rambunctious child. Let's yes,
0: rambunctious. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: but it was, I mean, the kid, so, you know, remember, um, so I grew up, so I'm born at the end of the 60s, 70s, 80s. So, so my, 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 you know, up until I graduated college in the 90s, uh, early, early 90s. Um, but most of my public education was in between that part where we had laws on the books you know, we had come out of Brown versus Board of Education. We had 504, we had 766. We had the institutional education laws, but I was in Missouri. And for those that know the history of Missouri, they understand what the Missouri compromise was. So if you were in St. Louis, if you were a child with a disability, you only went to one of the schools. And in the city, you went to one school. So dealing with our students was, it was not students, just like going to regular school. It's just going to school. You had kids you liked, kids you didn't like, you had your bullies, you had your jocks, you had your nerds. But we were all housed from first grade to seniors in high school in one building. So the tension was made by myself and my classmates was not, you know, between us. It was, why are we going to school and being educated in a way that's not going to do us any good? I mean, of course, at 13 and 10 and 12 and 9, that's not the language you're using. But as an adult, you look back and you say there really was difficulty trying to just get a teacher to stand up in front of a class and say three over four times one over two and be taught math. And so the concept, and so having that and then going to upstate New York in the mid 70s and being like the only child of color in an entire school district, and then being one of the first kids to be quote mainstream, um, it was always a chance, you know, even now like, I'm like, I'm in my 50s, like, it's, you know, we still look back and kids who are not naive, kids who are in school now are facing those same hurdles in, one, in terms of how can we get educated in order to get out of the system, in order to live a life Um, that we desire and that we mean. So it was always a challenge and the conflicts with the teachers were not because I was just like bad, but it was literally around, you know, teachers telling me that I couldn't have math or teachers telling me that the reason I'm in school is because I'm crippled. And so those are the kind of things that that got me, um, yeah, (laughs) put in places where discipline may or may not have been appropriate.
0: And despite all of that, you went to college. Is it Ryerson?
1: I went to Ramapo College.
0: <laughs> and that that was also a different kind of experience for you.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, um, because even now, and again, you know, we're we're going back, which is hilarious that my kids and, and older kids call it last millennium, but we're going back. Yeah, uh, way back. Yeah. Way, way back in the way back music. My goal when I was in really high school, I was going to go be an aeronautical engineer, you know, for some reason I wanted to go to the University of Michigan or Wentworth Institute on Technology or MIT. I had these dreams. I did not conceive of the fact that I would be on these campuses and they would be completely inaccessible. Because there was not, you know, there wasn't, it was like, I know I'm going to go. I have a wheelchair. Don't you, we just won't be there. But then we visited Ramapo College that that summer, that June of eighty eight, and it was just, you know, it was accessible. You could, I could get in and out of the the, the doors. It was connected to and it, and they had an understanding of disability and inclusion, which is rare. and this is in the eighties, end of the eighties actually. So I think it was like the only college on the entire East Coast that was completely accessible from beginning to end. And so the experiences were, I was fortunate with that because it allowed me to just have a college experience, you know, hang out with my roommates, go to parties, go here, go to class, you know, be away from my mama and be making completely completely irrational choices (laughs) as a 19-year-old and say, hey, you know, but then call back home and be like, can I get five dollars? So the challenges were not so much academic. It was always, there was always this layer over, you know, my disability is there, but I'm in a place where, you know, the accessibility and the the support kind of made it less problematic to get to class or to do the homework. Um, But we were also in the time where, you know, you couldn't go from between New Jersey and New York and be black. You couldn't, you know, you had Rudy Giuliani, you had, Joe, it, you had violence that is now caught on camera and put on social media. It's like, <sighs> shock and awe, America is killing Black people. But that was my reality. Before coming out of Boston, being a Black man in, in Boston, dealing with the Charles Stewart reality and then going to New Jersey and then dealing with, you know, with the issues of Brent Bensonhurst and New York and, and all of this. So... The academics and the socialization on campus was fantastic. Still friends with people to this day because of that. Um, but the the overarching social narratives were, you know, we're coming into, you know, just coming out of Reagan, going into Bush, going into Clinton. So society was not um, as embracing of my humanity as it should be, or as it is now, and it's still not. But it definitely was an experience and my disability played a part in it in terms of my friends being like, oh, every time we go to the store, they're like, well, we don't, we don't keep in a wheelchair, but they they had never seen society react to a person with a disability before because even my friends were like, we didn't go to college. We didn't go to school with anybody with a disability until we went to college with you. So, you know, it, it, it is, it's, it's, it's. Hodgepodge of experiences, and what I took from it was um, the best that I could. Which is graduated, got great friends, didn't get shot by the police. You know, <laughs> here to tell, right? still here to tell the story.
0: Did you feel even more vulnerable being black and being in a wheelchair?
1: You know, I came from St. Louis to upstate New York to Boston to Jersey for college. Um, And each, you know, and those who know American history about the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you know, this time that we're in now feels like, you know, Blackness and, you know, BIPOC and, you know, need to be aware. And so all of that predated social media. So all of this. So, you know, Rodney King was our version of social media and raising the, the, you know, things to the level of what it takes, you know, people to see on Twitter or Snapchat or Instagram or TikTok now—that you know, we knew it was happening. And so the difference is, so um, the wheelchair didn't really make a difference. It was really more about—I mean—in terms of like interpersonal relationships, the disability always popped up because it's like, Ew, "I don't want to date a man with a disability," and it wasn't because I wasn't sexy. It was because the social. Stigma. Well, we know
0: you're sexy. That's. <laughs> well, thank you very
1: much. Uh, but because, because of the social stigma that you know, a different human condition has, whether it's a, a, neurological dis, you know, a neurological disability, a cognitive disability, a acquired disability, a visible physical disability, or a hidden disability, those stigmas have lasted forever. Um, so that was the challenge, is getting over, you know, you're going through stages where you're discovering who you are and how you're going to move to life. And the one thing about you you can't change is the one thing that everybody hangs their hatred or their disgust or their their reason for not seeing your humanity on. So those were the challenges. But in terms of um, the wheelchair and Blackness, that was, you know, that was kind of baked into the cake by that point because it's America. So.
0: Yeah, the reason I asked that uh, No Limits to a, a, a small film about violence against people with disabilities and one of the people I interviewed had gone to Fenway Park. He was in a wheelchair. He was going out of Fenway Park. And these three or four guys who I guess had too many beers just started hitting him mm-hmm. for no apparent reason other than he was vulnerable in the wheelchair. And I remember him saying, you know, if I could have stood up, I would have belted them back. But, you know, there was nothing I could do. So right. I, I, that's why I brought it up, because you, you're bearing two. Uh, elements of discrimination and vulnerability whereas a white guy he's only yeah. got the wheelchair to worry about and they're still hitting him it's like what what could go through your mind he's not doing anything to you but you know let's displace yeah. our aggression on somebody who's not going to hit us back and it's, i was astonished to hear him talk like that Anyway, so you got out of college, and the whole world was open to you, and you decided to do what?
1: <laughs> that sounds so romantic, and I so I graduated college, and I was 22, 23, and I was back crazy. 22-year-olds coming out of college, 23-year-olds. We're not, like, we're out of college, but okay, now what? Um I got out of college. I wanted to go into teaching, and you know, you know, some issues happened. You know, whatever, whatever. But I graduated, and I became a parent um, one year out of college. And then I, so I entered into this new stage where it was being a parent of a child who, I hate this term, which is biracial, which is really a terrible description because race is a construct but hearing that weight of a, of a black child with a white mother from a disabled father in a time where, you know, they used to ask me, they like literally the courts would look at me like, we don't know if you can be a parent. Um, so the, the middle part of the nineties was spent on battling these forces because the world is open to me now. So I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to do all these things, but each and every time I tried to, whether I applied for a job, or um, there was one particular incident where a friend of mine and I had taught and we went to a, his principal and he wanted to introduce me to this other intelligent black man who he looked up to, you know, awesome, great guy supposedly, we go in and I'm told I'm too crippled to teach, even mm-hmm. though I had teaching already. And this is coming from people who look like me. And so, you know, I didn't really find my footing until towards the end of the 90s um, when I came back to Boston and accidentally fell into the independent living movement and working at Boston Church for Independent Living. And that kind of, uh, I guess I became the accidental advocate at that point, um, you know, just working through being a skill specialist and having to do what we had to do. It just it it became a thing, and here we are, thirty years later.
0: You should uh, describe what an independence uh, living movement is, or what is and was.
1: Uh, uh, of- yeah, it, yeah because it, you know if you're in it, you know if you're not in it, you're like, what the hell are you talking about? Right. Um, yeah. The independent living movement is a movement of independence for persons with disabilities. Um, started with the first center. Uh, in Berkeley, California, Boston Center for Independent Living was the second one. It was started by people with disabilities and um, with a peer-to-peer kind of model uh, to show other individuals with very similar disabilities or varying disabilities how to live in the community um, and and, and assist them in getting into the community. So we did anything from housing advocacy to housing churches to teach you how to use a personal care attendant travel training we did a lot of advocacy we helped you get met so but one of the core components was you just were you were you know sort of like um addiction counseling or any other peer-to-peer counseling you became that mirror in which people could see themselves and what was interesting was that people would look at me and be like how did you do it and I'm like because I was scared of my mama She's like, <laughs> like you better graduate, get some, graduate, get some good grades, get the hell out of my house. Okay, right. um, but it was they were shocked that my mother didn't have low expectations of me, or that my family didn't have. The, so, what I found in the independent living movement, at least when I was in it in the beginning, was that coming across certain individuals with disabilities, that society had beat them down into this, this hunched over, um posture psychologically where they were questioning their own humanity yeah. their own ability to love their own ability to just be like you know we are you still you, nobody wakes up in your body but you and so for other people to project on to you their beliefs or your limitations i mean you can't stop them from thinking what they're thinking but you can definitely um you know, reframe the way you see yourself. And so the independent movement now um, has morphed into this is anecdotal and this is my perception, uh, sort of a thing that I don't know if the world knows about it. I don't know if the disability community knows about it. And I also definitely don't think that um, it's, it's, it's weightiness and its power has been given uh, its historical due.
0: I know a little bit about it you know, and how long ago it started in the late 60s at Berkeley because the first person that was admitted to Berkeley with a substantial disability, Ed Roberts, they had no place to even put him. They put him in the infirmary. (laughs) Every place has steps and he needed to be in what they called an iron lung, I think, at that time. I flash forward to a professor at the Harvard Law School who, uh, this is about the time, You were going to college, the late 80s. And uh, they said to him, well, you you know, we're going to admit you have great grades and everything. But how are you going to get around Harvard Square? We have no idea. And he wound up on the law review and he's a professor there. But like, what are you talking about? I mean, can't you give him a student to help him, you know, over the red brick? uh, Oh, And the rest of our society is just the inability to even observe. The obstacles that are right in front of almost anybody. It's hard to walk around Harvard Square for anybody right. over a certain age, you know, because a lot, I can say that with a lot of experience.
1: <laughs> if you are an institute of higher education, then you supposedly are educated. But then the question is, educated to what? Because a person with a disability showing up on your campus, whether it's Harvard, whether it's Penn State, whether it's Stanford, UCLA, Ramapo College, whether it's Roxbury Community College, whether it's DeVry Institute, if you're talking about being educated and intellectual, but then your biases trump your ability to see my humanity and and my thirst for knowledge, so you're like, well, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of effed up that you can't get around campus, but, you know. We, what we'll do is we'll duct tape you to this spot and then, work <laughs> around, right, you know, and I'm supposed to be like, "Hey, look what the place I graduated from—they had me pinned to the corner." Like, Will you? so it's it's you know it's it's that it's that that's the intersection of of disgust, anger, and sort of frustration that I have, and um, you know, talking about employment and wanting to get kids to to get into school and wanting kids to you know, we did the whole thing opt for college in the early 2000s because education is key. We know what the data is. The more educated you are, uh, the higher your earning potential is. But we also know that abject poverty is what weights kids anywhere from 16 to 22 who are transitioning to adulthood out of public education who happen to have an IEP or a disability. I literally lived right across Beacon Street, right on the back end side of Harvard Square. I used to take my wheelchair and go through Harvard Square to get to the elevator in Harvard Square in order to get to work. And I used to laugh, and like, you own half of Cambridge and you can't put one automatic door, one curb cut, right? But right. like, you know, you can't like, and so this, this weird kind of synergy of like, we need to keep our tradition, we need to keep our our elitism, but what we're going to do is constantly trail and like that we are going to be inaccessible because that's a subconscious way of telling us, telling y'all, we don't want your answers here. Excuse me, my friends. Yeah. But no. that, you know, but that's the, um, but that's the underpinning of higher education. So it's you can't tell me that you are the elite schools and yet you are trapped by your own personal biases around students with intellectual disabilities, students with physical disabilities. Mental health challenges, and you can't, in your own intellectual substrate or subculture, build into the fabric that humans show up in many different ways. And that, if you're intelligent, it is upon you to adapt to the way that human shows up to make sure that they are have access to the thing that you're offering, versus saying, "Well, oh, you know, Larry, I would love you to come to the restaurant." But right, like so, it's that kind of thing. So, I just think now, hopefully, we can get to a point where people use their positions accurately, as opposed to perpetuating um biases and prejudices.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a struggle. I uh, if you remember Reg Lindsay, the judge, he uh, used to tell me, and he was right. in a wheelchair, he'd call a restaurant. I mean, those days you called, and you couldn't see the restaurant. He says, is it accessible? And they'd say, yeah, it's accessible. And you'd get there be right. five stairs. Right. He told me it was accessible. It's accessible to me. And say it was accessible to me. It's all how you define accessibility. And the music was always part of your life, I think, during this time. And, so talk a little bit about that. I know you had your own studio and you were doing rap music and
1: yeah, where did that all start? My music has been from birth, I guess. My grandmother had a piano in a, in her house. So I would sit next to her and we actually wrote a gospel song. I think it was like six.
0: Really? Uh,
1: huh. Yeah. But that was like the first, that's like one of the first recollections I had like actually composing a song, quote unquote. Moved up to New York and that's when I bumped into hip hop and that was, you know, we were in Upstate New York, and I remember uh, my mother and I, and, and and her friend going to some other friends of hers' house, and their kids had a turn had a DJ set up. I was like, "What is that?" Right? And then he put on the records. I was like, "What is that?" And I believe it was sugar. I believe it was because um, hip hop had not gotten out of the side in New York too tough at that point. Um, so I think those Sugar Hill Gang, and we, and I just was like, "I ain't. Gonna, I need to do this." um and then we would go um every thanksgiving at least for three thanksgivings uh, while we were in the upstate new york um down to brooklyn to my adoptive grandmother's house and i would sit in the back and listen to the radio and listen to the and listen to her, and write rhymes and in the live in her living room in bed style brooklyn though it die uh that's when i came up with my rap name which was f-e-z-o and so. You know, I I waffled between rapping and singing. I was like, I wanted to be like Michael Jackson and Prince and Barge and, you know, and all these people, you know, James Ingram and Quincy Jones. And then I discovered debauchery and liquor and cigarettes. So I ruined my voice. So then
0: I. (laughs) Well, debauchery does that to you. Yeah, yeah,
1: debauchery does. But music has always been a part of it. It is, you know, when I got to Ramapo, we had a rap group. I worked was an amazing human, Michael Savionesso, who taught me all of, like anything I know about audio technology right now, uh, was predicated upon him. And he, along with some really good friends, we did music and we had done some shows. There's actually footage of some shows. I just hope that I can get to Ralph McDaniels and actually get that footage. Um, we were on Video Music Box at least three times, but every time we got to to a Sony Polygram or to an Arista we would run into ableism and they would be like, oh my God, you guys are amazing. And it would be like, yeah, but the guy who did the music and one of the rappers has a disability, they like, hmm. And they literally told our manager, I mean, he, rest in peace. he just passed recently. They had told him, and I remember this, we were sitting in the student center. He came back with that demo and said, Aristology, but they don't know if we didn't really want Keith to rap. So, they want to keep them right, still keep writing around and making music. And they want you and they want my man to do all the rapping because they didn't know how to market it. Wow. And then, you know, so that fell through. Uh, we had another opportunity with Sony Polygram. We had gotten there, um, and the guy was like, I love you guys. Just come back for a second meeting. You know, we got in the second meeting, and the, the his intern wanted a power struggle. And then they were like, you're still too disabled for us to promote. Um, And so effectively, my music career has not been stymied because I I suck. I mean, I think I'm good. Uh, But, you know, um, it's really been not necessarily the fact that we weren't good. It was the fact that we couldn't get past people's ableism. And the irony is is that these are people of color in a society in which they're discriminating against me because of my human condition, but then they'll be shot dead in the street because of the color of their skin. So it, yeah. it, that kind of just position. So, but music has, you know, music has always been there. We, you know, we formed Crip Hop Nation got 20 years ago now, but formerly 15. And we've done music. I've, I've still been putting out music, you know, working on my next album, quote unquote, even though it's an antiquated term now but I've used it to teach students from here to Melbourne, Australia, to Calcutta, to Germany, to Brazil. So music has been woven in through the advocacy, the public policy, um, and just giving back to the community.
0: Talk about how you just won an Emmy for uh, a documentary about sports, I think the Paralympics, and you worked on composing the lyrics. How did that come about? The other thing is, how many opportunities have occurred since?
1: (laughs) I'll leave the last part for the last part. Yeah, leave it to the last
0: part.
1: So Leroy Moore, Jr., Rob Denoy's Temple, uh, and myself started something called Crip Hot Nation. Late 2000, late 99, early 2000s, and we formalized around 2003. Um, But it was all because Rob was the DJ for Sugar Hill, but had a disability. And anything that he wanted to do outside of that, they used, they, what they told him was what they told me. And Leroy, the same thing. They t- so we, we decided, you know, we do Krip Hop. Um, and so, you know, now we are 14 chapters in 15 countries on five continents with something like almost 600 or 700 different artists loosely mm-hmm. affiliated with us, um, which is amazing because it's crazy that we built this up from using MySpace to Facebook and the internet early on. And so that has led to some opportunities. And they had approached Leroy, I think in 2014, for the London Olympics because they were looking for a theme song, but they wanted a named artist. And Leroy was like, no. (laughs) And then they came back again. And Daniel Pemberton, who is the composer of the the soundtrack for uh, the documentary Rise in Phoenix, uh, shout out to my people. They reached out to Leroy and Leroy and how I got on was Leroy had sent them a list of artists that are affiliated with Crib Hop Nation and they picked out the ones that they liked. George DuBois and they had picked out um, Tony Hickman, the first lady of Crib Hop Nation. They were like, they had the song and Leroy emailed me. It was like, yo, we need you on the song. And they sent me the song. And it was like, do you want to be on it? I was like, you know, if Leroy calls, I... I never say no, because I just never say no. And they sent me the track and the track was pretty much done. I was like, you don't need me because the song is amazing already. And they were like, no, no, no. Um, And so in a matter of 46 hours, I recorded two songs, that verse, uh, the song we did for the 8830 celebration. Um, And that's how I got on the song. And I recorded it here, Tony recorded her verse, in Houston, George recorded his verse in California, and we sent it to Daniel, who mixed and mastered it at Every Road Studio. Um, oh, wow. And we've been fortunate enough that the song was released by Coldplay. Uh, we, you know, Everybody who hears the song is like, wow. But this goes back to um, the larger issue about ableism and getting into the pop culture. You know, that's so, you know, everybody who's heard it, like, hands down, this is not me saying it to the morning. It's just the reaction has been, it is a powerful song. Um, but because it is a centered on a, a documentary talking about disabled athletes or persons with disabilities, I, we've not gotten nearly... Um, the traction you know, or the trade that any other theme song that had had that that was debuted in the 190s of countries, and that was string you know attached to the closing ceremony of the paralympics or the, the olympics and open up in the tokyo olympics and we've gotten you know people go oh my god you got it in me but like i you, my friends say oh my god you got it in me but i go on the street and they're like i'm still black in the wheelchair so in terms of the opportunities that have come from the, the Emmy win, I mean outside of the ones we're making on our own, I mean there's been some success for some of the other artists on its side. We have, we have made some strides, but in terms of the large scale opportunities in terms of moving on to bigger high profile projects, that has not necessarily taken shape.
0: That's why I asked you about it, because uh, when we spoke before, I remember you were telling me you know it was shocking, but uh, expected almost you know, right. like t- tell me what the lyrics said uh, what were the words
1: that you helped uh, i mean it it's, it's really you know it's, the song really is about you know george George has his take, Tony has her take. I have my take um and we watched the documentary and the documentary kind of informed um you know our verses so really each verse is talking about the struggle and the outside perception of our humanity and how the strength of what we have to overcome that in order for you to see our humanity um so the you know the, the hook is real the hook is crazy so tony killed it um it's i'm a rising phoenix and i'll rise above you you know and that's you know, I'm doing it very, I'm doing it a bad disservice by not singing it, but I'm not going to ruin Tony's beautiful vocals by um, sounding like a drunk Barry White that I won't do. Um, <laughs> but my verse is, but it's on your mark, it said, the pistols pop from out the box, I hit the ground running. It's essentially, I'm in a race where you don't see, you can't, I'm in a race where you, well, I can't get out of the box because people already have a hundred yard dash ahead of me, you start, you know, hundred meters ahead of me started. And that's just because of my blackness. That's, then you had another thousand meters on it because of my disability. And so my section of the song talks about how that race is run and how, when you see us, we transform in front of your eyes and become great in spite of your short sightedness in terms of interpreting my humanity. So I the song. I love the song. You know, people played it. I think we've been on Spotify playlists. The BBC put us number 13 on their list of Olympic all time great songs. We've done something that I don't think any, it's rare that disabled artists do, particularly for myself in in this collective as being a, a quote unsigned, unquote, major artist to a label to walk away with one of the EGOTs. So it, you know, it, hopefully, it would deem a little more recognition. Not it's, it's not for myself, just for Crip Hop Nation to expose the greatness of these humans with their talent. Um, but the challenge has been, we're not. It's still disability. It's still ableism. It's still dealing with a industry that is looking for something that can be prepackaged and cloned, uh, but not. Show the full press and depth of what music and particularly hip hop can do. Yeah,
0: that's unfortunately the case in a lot of areas. There's some recognition, but there isn't the push. So, so let's go out where you perceive the country is in terms of your journey and the journey of other people with disabilities and the journey of people with color with
1: disabilities.
0: Let me get your perception of it.
1: I'll put on my activist um, policymaker hat. These are issues that are not complicated. These are issues that are predicated in a tacit and complicit and explicit effort to perpetuate uh, societal interpretations of melanated people. That's one. And let me put it flat for people who can't understand it. Systemic ableism, racism. These are choices made by policymakers and by those who are subject to the policy, to whether or not they're going to enforce it. So we've always known that that children with disabilities have been undereducated, particularly in a country where the laws of where they have seen you as three fifths of the human, um, or particularly if your per- if your child with the disability of indigenous descent and you know even children who are of european descent face these barriers as well but they have that that one thing that we don't which is they don't have the built in structural societal apathy and and, and 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 hatred for our existence that's structural that is perpetual and so where we are in terms of um, employment economic development Education independently pick one. The stagnation is not by those who are being oppressed. The stagnation is with those who well, I you have to convince teachers that students with disabilities are worthy of teaching, we have a problem. You have to, you have to convince doctors that people with disabilities are worthy of health care versus um, you know, a miracle cure is a problem. And so if you come from a community in which Healthcare disparities are always four to one, six to one, 10 to one. Your outlook in terms of economic attainment is bleak. I know some amazing people who have managed to do some amazing things, but we all know that for every Keith, there's a hundred thousand that don't get the opportunity to, be, to, to get the rent, get the rent that don't get to work at the Boston Center for Independence, don't get to go on to do these things, not because they can, but because, one, they're in the system in which their humanity is instantly devalued, solely because of people in positions with the ability to positively or negatively affect the outcome revert to racism. If I'm a Black man in school with a disability and I have to convince you I'm worthy of education, that... Is still from the Brown versus Board of Education because y'all are still there, the black folks in school with white folks. This is 2022. You're still having the Department of Justice have to go in school sue school districts for so substantially segregating students with disabilities from the general population. And these are people with degrees in education who are making conscious and systemic choices to perpetuate the devaluation of students. And if you're talking about Black students or brown students, students of color. Those are choices. And so the economic outlook is can be is bleak, but it's not without hope. So I want to be clear about that. It's not without hope. There's a survival within the community because we love to breathe, right? Like we love to eat. We like to like get up and be like, okay, today I'm still alive. The quality of life, however, is, you know, if you if you've seen uh, the disability really community what the pandemic exacerbated and and highlighted is what we have known since forever and so the economic outcome is how do we get political parties who are really not interested in governing or good governance or good policy to start caring about the people that every two to four years they come and want to kiss the baby and get put in positions of power And we still don't have credit reform, housing reform, reform for a social security, center for Medicaid, Medicare services, so how do we talk about housing? We can't get uh, fully inclusive education, we can't get fully inclusive public transportation. Like there are these barriers to these things and it's not incumbent upon the child born on the south side of Chicago to a family who just may happen to have autism. It's society has decided that there's a certain level of humanity we like, or that we'll tolerate. There's a certain level of humanity that we deem necessary to be productive. But in the pandemic, good luck. So, you know, with the CDC director controversy about well, we're conflict, we're glad that the people that are dying, per the quote from the disability community, that it's just disabled people, or people with comorbidities, you know, we're good. So. Will it be better? Yes, it will be better. Are there ways to do it? Yes, there are ways to do it. Are there enough people who are smart enough to say, you know that that bs about I have unconscious bias is just that. And let's get down to the business of making progress for humanity. i I don't know, but we work at it. we work at
0: it. Yeah, well, that's the reason we're having the podcast and uh, inclusion at work as a TV series is so there is optimism here. Uh, that's why I say the value and abilities of people with disabilities that has to be for m- most in the minds of people who are listening here. And I'm hoping that when they hear you and other people who have been successful, that they will grasp that you're a fellow human being and that meet you halfway so we can figure this out so everybody can be included. Where's the future for you? Where are you heading right now?
1: The future is bright, I guess, because I'm old and I want to go on about my business. Uh, but <laughs> I, you know, but um, the future is in. You know, my oldest is 28, going to be 28, and my youngest wow. twins are going to be eight in July. So my future is looking 13 years out because then they'll be 21 and they'll be off my books. So then they can do whatever the hell they want. And I can go to sleep. <laughs> the future. <laughs>
0: You're your mother-son
1: then, yes. Yeah, very much my mama uh, <laughs> But the future holds, we are in the process of uh, putting together and launching a streaming service in October. Hopefully we can get, you know, we'll start with uh, the catalog that hot Nation has and open it up to a few um, other people and friends that are going to allow us to show their work and stream it on the channel and then build it out to give people a place where they can just turn on and see themselves you know, and not and not see themselves in a way it's like, and this is Keith, and oh my God, it's so amazing because he got up today and he took a breath. Uh, like, no, this is not that, this is, you know, this is what it's like to be, you know, indigenous with autism, reason, you know, living in a community in which this happens. Or it's a sitcom where disability is not blatant, it just it's just part of who the cast is or, Here's an autoerotic thriller. Here is a, you know, to give the breadth and scope of what humanity is on this platform. So that's the big shiny object. Um, working to do Crip Hop Nation Institute to underpin international studies and communication with people with disabilities, um, you know, on the, in, in terms of the places in which we have uh, connections um, and begin it out for the larger community. And lastly, Just to try to, because humanity is, oh my God. Like people get no, it's only just time to get on my soapbox for a hot second. I just, I'm at the stage of my life where I hear anybody complain about something. I'm like, we are in the middle of a global pandemic in which we are talking about the terms, where we're using the terms of vaccine racism. We're talking about people invading, you know, everybody's consumed currently with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yet yeah, we're silent um, when Ethiopian Jews were being evicted out of Israel or are not talking about the conflicts in other parts of the world. We're not talking about the Uyghurs in China. We're not talking about, you know, ethnic ethnic groups in Central Europe and Central Asia or Africa. So the selective outrage for me is that it's all, like all everything that's happening so far. And this goes to employment because we are in a pandemic. And we're, at, we're, we're, again, at an existential crisis where people have ignored the fact that people are dying in order to go to war to kill more. So how do you instill hope for a child who's looking at this and then goes to school and the teacher says, well, you're not worthy of learning math. But we are in an age now where technology can allow individuals to be entrepreneurs, to do remote work, to be exceedingly creative in ways where big business or businesses had not been created before. So everything like we're doing this on Zoom, right? Everybody's been in Zoom boxes for the last two and a half years. This was a fight as an accommodation prior to the pandemic. So as I think, um, if business is smart, they would want to tap into the disability community using these euphemisms. We are at minimum 15% of the planet. Uh, in the United States, we are minimum 25 percent of the population. At minimum, we have 1.9 trillion dollars of economic life power. If you are smart enough to design your products for humans versus for a particular subset and genre, you are now opening yourself up to, to new and emerging markets. If you are hiring individuals with different human capacities and abilities, you are now infusing diversity and equity and inclusion in your community, in your business, which will then reflect in your products and your consumer loyalty. This is basic business. Like, this ain't complicated. And the only reason you don't hire women is because you're a misogynist. The only reason you don't hire black people is because you're racist. The only reason you don't hire disabled people is because you're ableist. Stop, those are choices. That's not endemic in human nature. So we have hope. I just hope that I don't give up before I see it come to
0: Oh, no, you'll never give up. <laughs> you have an indomitable spirit. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I'll tell you a little uh, story, of which I don't think I ever shared with you. So when you were in the board, we used to have these meetings, and since we didn't have a lot of money, we were usually spaghetti meals. If you right. And I was putting out the plates, uh, the paper plates, of course, we couldn't afford real plates. And uh, I put the spaghetti out on your plate and you put your head down into the plate. And I went internally, oh my God, what is he doing? I was going to cut it for him. (laughs) And and you sucked it up. And then I said to myself, what is the matter with you? He knows what he's doing. He wants to eat the spaghetti. He doesn't need your help. Get with it, Larry. (laughs) And so there was... That was an eye-opener to me about my own prejudice. I mean, it just comes out of the culture, you know, like, well, they need my help. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't want your help. (laughs) You know, he can do it himself. And he's done it. And he will do it. So, I mean, I think that is what able-bodied people need to know. They need to know that it just resides in them. They need to see it. And they need to deal with it. It's not your problem. It's their problem. And if they deal with it, then we can do this. I mean, it's not, as you say, it's not brain surgery. It's just, it's it's simple in a a very fundamental way that you're a human being and I'm a human being and we can figure this out. And uh, so I wish you a lot of luck and I know you'll be successful and the successes hopefully will come as we open up our society even more. And we just have to keep fighting. So thanks a lot, Keith.
1: Well, thank you, Larry. And thank you for not cutting up the spaghetti because it would have made me crazy. I was like, no, I, don't I know. <laughs> I,
0: I, the look I don't alone would have sent me held <laughs> into the wall, but I just, <laughs> you know, it's something I learned. I, I had to learn it.
1: And the last thing I'll just say um, before we go is that story. That story is very anecdotal. Very powerful. Because again, it was you acknowledging that it's not external, it's internal. And I think for our community, for those who hold phobias, those, your fear doesn't lie in the people that you don't like. It's internal. So whether it's ableism, racism, sexism, misogyny, xenophobia, whatever, we are better. Like, I don't care if you don't like it. Just keep it to yourself. You know, and let's, let's, let's try to lose society in a way that, you know, the, the, the greatest accomplishment mankind should be making or humankind should be making is achieving global peace and accepting our humanity as we show up.
0: Absolutely. Well, again, thanks for everything you've done and will be doing. And uh, I look forward to seeing all of it happen. Thank you. Have a great day.